Thanks for joining us for the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. We're excited to have Dr. Lenny Tatelman as a special guest for today's episode. Lenny has over a decade of computational and experimental biology experience. He did his graduate studies at UC Berkeley, and it was his struggle with correcting a published research method as a postdoc at MIT that led him to co-found Protocols.io. Lenny brings to Protocols.io a strong passion for open access, sharing knowledge, and improving research efficiency through technology. Lenny, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you, Anita. It's a pleasure to take part in it, and I'm looking forward to it. Lenny, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? I am a computational and experimental biologist, geneticist, um, who originally was a math major. And I think it's important for what my experience with methods and method development was as a math major who never held a pipette. So my background was in undergraduate math, and then I saw the light, switched to bioinformatics. And when I came to graduate school, I actually picked up the pipetting and experimental work. So my background is genetics and computational biology. And then, of course, in 2012, along with the co-founders of Protocols.io, we came up with the idea for a central place to share details of methods and keep protocols organized. And that's Protocols.io that I've been now full-time on since 2013. Great. And did you ever experience a minor tweak, major impact moment when you're still working in the lab? Particularly with my math background, I experienced a lot of tweaking and learning because unlike most students that come into the PhD with substantial lab experience, I had never really been in the lab. I thought I hated biology starting in high school in ninth grade. It was the only thing I hated in high school. I loved everything else, physics, history, except biology. So I had a lot of tweaking, but in terms of minor tweak, major impact, which wasn't just me not knowing what I was doing, but biology not cooperating, I've had a few of those that were humbling experiences to say the least. Can you tell us a little bit more about one of them? Yeah, so there is one that some people have probably heard about, if they know Protocols.io, that I often describe as the genesis for protocols. But one that most people don't know about comes from a paper that I published after I finished my PhD, but I spent several years of my PhD and then wrapping it up as a postdoc. So it's a paper that took about seven years of my life. And what's particularly amazing about it as minor tweak, major impact kind of thing is that in the method section of this paper is one sentence. So the paper is called Enigmatic Conservation of a Rep1 Binding Site and Saccharomyces cerevisiae HMRE Silencer. It's a very uh, detailed title. And there is a sentence in that paper, which is, I'll just read it to you exactly. We replaced the HMRE variant, AAACCCATAAC, with the genome-wide consensus sequence for the REP1 protein, ACACCCATACATT. So that's a single sentence. Most people won't know what it means. That's a sentence that took three years of my life. I kid you not. It's one sentence in the paper, and it was three years of tweaking and trying to get a really simple thing to work. Wow. And how did that happen? Why did it take three years for you to tweak that? So it could be that part of it was 
that math background and not knowing what I'm doing. But that's only, I think, a minor part of this. Because by the point I started this project, I was already in my second or third year. I've done the rotation. I was getting more comfortable. And the experiment itself is such a classic routine one that I had done already at that point, had done multiple times in Saccharomyces cerevisiae, in the budding yeast. And in this particular case, it was a really interesting observation that the sequence that I just read is a signal for protein, DNA binding protein, to bind to the specific location on the chromosome and do some work. And it's what the protein itself is what's called a transcription factor. It usually binds upstream of genes, connects to the DNA upstream of genes to turn them on so that RNA and then other proteins can be made. So this is a sequence in the DNA that a protein recognizes, binds to, and activates the gene transcription factor. However, what I was studying, why it's called a silencer, in one of the parts of the yeast genome, instead of doing what it does in hundreds of other locations, this protein, instead of binding and turning genes on, binds and silences the entire region in partnership with other proteins. So creates what in humans is known as heterochromatin, very different structure of the DNA chromatin that prevents expression of the genes that are in there. And I was fascinated as a graduate student by why is this protein turning genes on everywhere with the exception of this spot. And so the research itself, what attracted me in this problem is that other genomes of yeast were published at that point. And computationally, I saw that there was striking conservation of the binding sequence, right, that those letters that I read in the silencing region that were very different from the other locations that were not as good for this protein to recognize. It was in a region where everything else had changed, but between the different yeast species, while everything around it had changed, this sequence itself remained the same. And so my prediction was, aha, the computational analysis that I did indicates that this particular variant of the sequence is important and probably the protein binds here and does the opposite of what it does elsewhere because of the sequence itself. And I already this was my prediction from the computational work, and I had envisioned this beautiful paper that would come out showing that here's computational work, here's experimental work that Lenny and colleagues did that shows why it's acting differently, major breakthrough. I could see the paper already writing itself. The problem was that to do the experiment and test whether this signal is there and if this is the sequence that's important, I needed to take the standard genome-wide sequence that this protein likes and put it into the silencing region. That's all. It should take two weeks of work. It took me three years. Wow, that's a crazy story. I know you already mentioned it a little bit, but I know that protocols.io really only exist because you experienced another minor tweak, major impact moment. Can you please tell us a little bit more about that story? And also, how did the idea of protocols.io get born out of that? So the other story is not from the PhD work. The other story is from my postdoctoral experience where I came in apparently not scarred enough by this experience of taking three years to do something simple. I came into the lab at MIT collaborating with a Harvard lab where I felt, oh, there's this really cool technique, single cell microscopy. I'm going to be able to look at 
single cell resolution at individual yeast cells to see how transcription is regulated, I thought I would have really fantastic results within six months. So the person who developed this RNA fish technique, Arjun Raj, he was finishing his postdoc in the lab. He's now a professor at UPenn. He was about to move to his new faculty position, but he trained me in the technique and the Harvard collaborators had the yeast strain that I was going to study. So I felt like everything was ready. Took me a month to learn the technique doing the single cell RNA microscopy. And then I take the strain from the Harvard lab. I put it under the microscope and I am not seeing any transcription that I know is there. And then it took the next year and a half of trying to figure out what was going on. Again, that math background, I'm not the best experimentalist. I'm probably a better computational biologist. I'm probably screwing this up. It's probably my fault. So over and over, I thought I was doing something wrong, and that's why I wasn't working either with the technique or with the way I was handling the strain from the Harvard lab. And at the end of the day, after a year and a half, it turned out that there was a simple correction to this new method that was developed. It was working beautifully in mouse cells and human cells and C. elegans, but in yeast, we needed to tweak one particular step, microliter of a specific enzyme. We needed to add five instead of a 15-minute incubation. We needed an hour, but at the end of the day, it's not a new technique, right? So I've now spent a year and a half, but it's just a correction of something that's previously published. So the frustration around spending all this time developing a technique, getting no credit for it, and more importantly, knowing that anybody else who's using that method is either getting completely misleading single cell level results or has to spend a year or two rediscovering this, I found really motivating to try to make this better and create a central place with the co-founders, Alexei Stilerchuk and Irina Makaveva, to create a central place, Protocols.io, where it's easy to capture these details, share them with people and get credit for them and then keep them up to date. Great. And I think so if you're in the lab and you're working on something and you expect it will take a couple of days and then it takes a couple of weeks or maybe you expect that it will take a couple of weeks and then it takes a couple of years, it can become really frustrating. Do you have any tips that you might be able to give to anyone who's experiencing frustrating minor tweak moments during the research? How do you stay motivated to keep going forward and not giving up? It's a great question. So to keep yourself going, I think it's good to take a break from something that's just not moving so you can step back and maybe having not just one project, but having two projects so you can switch and stay sane when it just isn't working. So you're not beating your head against the wall too much. So for me, taking a month away or two months away from that, trying to change that sequence and do the routine experiment that should take two weeks, but I can't get it to work, leaving it for a month so that the bruise on my forehead from beating the wall can heal a little bit. And then you get new ideas, you talk to people and you get back to it. So taking that space away from the frustration was important for me. And in the second case and first case, what really helped me was just complaining about it to other people. So I would give lab meetings, I would talk to people and just say like, I don't understand this simple thing, right? It should be working and it's not. And when you talk about the failures, when you talk about the frustration, it took three, four years in the first story where I was at a yeast genetics meeting organized by the Genetic Society of America. And at a breakfast, I was sitting with a French researcher, uh, Gail Fischer, who I was complaining to about this, like, why do simple things take a long time? And he said, oh, 
I've got a problem like this in my lab. Here's what we did. And kid you not, it took three, four years, but then I came back and it worked in two weeks exactly as it should, right? But talking to other people and taking the space and time to just cool down and think, what can I do differently rather than just repeating the same thing over and over? That I found to be really helpful. Great. And a little bit related, but now that you're not in a lab anymore, if you look back at your time in the lab, what are some important lessons that you have learned from that time in the lab? You know, I will say specifically about this method development, what are the lessons from this for me? It's not just talking to other people. This is part of the education of a scientist to me. It was a humbling experience where you come in, you set out your goals. It should be fairly easy and straightforward to do. You know how long these techniques take. I multiplied by two because I'm a math major and not great experimentally yet. And then three years later, you realize, wow, simple things can take forever. And it just it's humbling. It gives you an appreciation. I think when you go through things like this as a student and postdoc, if you then become a group manager or leader or professor, you'll just have the empathy. You learn how long science takes. You learn how much luck there is in it, right? And you can do the exact same thing and get very lucky, right? Because you're asking it in strain A versus strain B. And the person next to you who is just as smart as you and is doing the exact same thing, but the organism there or the strain they are using in their lab is slightly different and there is a tweak that needs to happen. And so it takes them a year longer and you beat them to the punchline and to the publication, right? This is part of the reality of science. And so if things are going great for you, that's fantastic, but don't get too cocky and think that I am brilliant and better than other people. And in reverse, if things are not going well for you, you need to realize that this is science and you may be just as brilliant as the person next to you, but there is a huge element of luck, right? So as long as you're being a good scientist and you are following the method and you're asking good questions, those are the things that are up to you. But I think for all of us in the long run, it's good to have these experiences where we're not just sailing through the scientific workflow and career development with all luck. It's good to have experiences like this because they are humbling. And I think they make you a better scientist and in the future, a better manager or supervisor. Great. And switching gears a little bit, I would like to touch on a more timely situation that we're in right now. And one thing that I've been seeing with the coronavirus, the COVID-19 situation is that the scientific community in general is becoming much more open than normally we'd see them. And like people are really sharing things rapidly and everybody's working together. And a lot of the science is really openly shared and just like published very fast. Do you think this whole coronavirus situation might result in a general mindset switch for researchers in general? And we might come out of this with a more wider acceptance for open science? I certainly really hope that that is exactly what will happen. I am a strong advocate for open access. My PhD co-advisor at Berkeley was Michael Eisen, who is the co-founder of Public Library of Science. So I've always deeply cared about open access and have been frustrated that we're not moving faster toward it. And over the past outbreaks, I've noticed this pattern since 2015 or 16, where there will be Zika, Ebola, opioid crisis. And with every new crisis, the funding agencies and publishers and scientific community would come out and say, 
you know what, we need accelerated work on this. We need everyone to cooperate. We can't have paywalls. We need open access and open science, and we need the work on Ebola to happen as quickly as possible. So let's make it all open access. Let's all share openly and try to move this along really fast. And what I've always found frustrating is that we make these carve-outs and we say, oh yes, let's make for this particular disease because it's an epidemic, because it's Ebola or Zika, let's make this research open and fast. And the question in my mind is always, so it is important for Zika that we move fast, but for malaria patients, because it's not a new problem, or pediatric cancer patients, or Parkinson's patients, right? For climate change, for the things that have been around and are not new crises, is it not important? And that's what was always baffling to me. Why don't we want all science and all research to move as fast as it possibly can. And what I think may be different, what I'm hoping we would take away from the COVID-19 pandemic is when we resume that because we've all been touched by it, it's not just a problem in another country. It's not just a problem of some people who got SARS or Zika, but we've all been touched by it. I hope we come out of it with an appreciation that we have to do science in a different way. And I've been seeing now articles in the popular press and New York Times, several within just, I, I think, two articles just within the last month in New York Times that this is going to be a fundamental and long-term shift in the way we do science and share it. So I really hope that this isn't a temporary. Let's all collaborate and communicate and share these things, open access and do more open science. So we move it along as fast as we can to get a vaccine for coronavirus. I'm hoping that it is exactly what you're asking in your question, a long-term impact. Right. And I hope for that, too. It will be really exciting to see. Do you have any additional last thoughts or any insights that you would like to share with our listeners today? Additional thoughts. This, this was fun. I really enjoyed the questions and love the podcast. I know it's from our company, so I'm biased in loving it, but I listen to all of them and am grateful that you've invited me to be on it. Great. And then we have one last fun question. And I know you're not in a lab right now anymore, but if you think back on your lab time and if you would have been allowed to make a wish for a tool that in the lab, during your time in the lab, would have been helpful for you and it would have made your life easier, what would that have been? Can I answer it as two related questions? Sure. One is not a new tool necessarily. I would wish for something to be improved, which is a way to ask questions not in person. And when I was struggling with these things 10 years ago, there wasn't even Twitter yet or ResearchGate or Protocols.io where you can go and ask a question. But I think it's easier today to do troubleshooting and make these complaints and ask for crowdsourced knowledge and answers because we do have Twitter and ResearchGate and Protocols.io. But I still think we need better ways of getting a question to the right audience. So if you're a new student and you just opened a Twitter account, you can ask a question, but you don't have followers, right? How do we ask questions in the way that we would at a conference in person? How do we ask a question when we're having trouble that's not just from our colleagues in our lab or just to our 10 Twitter followers? And I don't think we have perfect answer for that. And that I think would be helpful. So, you know, we have the tools. I just think we need them to be a little bit better at getting our questions to the people that can answer them. 
so that it doesn't take four years of complaining in person whenever you can. And the other tool that I would say, this might be controversial, but I personally, from my time in the lab, now that I think about it, I think I would have really benefited from a video camera above my bench that records what I've done. And it would be controversial because with security breaches and privacy, we don't necessarily want professors watching what we've done or people hacking in and getting three years of video of you doing experiments in the lab and making mistakes or maybe not being as safe as you should be. But for me personally, I wonder if there could be a video recording that I switch on, turn on a camera, I'm doing the experiment, turn it off and it erases next day, for example, so that we're not just storing these things. But I've had so many moments where I'm doing the work and someone distracts you and you don't know which tube or which well of a 96 well plate you've just added the reagents to. And it can throw off your entire experiment and you have to redo it. You lose a week of work or you say a prayer, even though I'm an atheist and you hope that you just edit it to well number 17 and not 18 and you keep going, hoping that you didn't mess up. But there are just, it's such a routine worry. What did I just do? Did I get buffer A? Did I not? Did I put it in? I have no idea. Someone just asked me a question or there was a loud noise behind me. And if I had a video where I could quickly rewind and see what I did three minutes ago, that would have saved me so many failed experiments. That's a cool idea. I like that a lot. Maybe it could even be like a, a GoPro or something that you have on your head and it's connected to your phone or something and you can rewind and see what you did five minutes ago. Really yeah, fun it, does, idea. It, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't have to be some grand new startup that builds it. I think, again, we have the technology, but just installing it in the lab and remembering to turn it on and having an easy way to view, wait, what, what did I just do? Did I add it or not? Yeah, very cool idea. Lenny, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your stories and insights on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you, Anita. This was a blast. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon.